everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process. I, of course, am your host, Greg Wareham. We got a great guest today, and you know, it's the perfect time to have Dennis Killfeather on the show. Dennis, how you doing? Greg, thanks for having me here. Excited I, to be here. Yeah, uh, it's great to have you. It's tax season, baby. And we, we need you. We started, you know, W-2s came out last weekend. Stuff started to hit, you know. It always starts slow. It starts at the W-2s, then the 1099s. <laughs> then everybody's calling every five minutes wanting to know where the return <laughs> is. So we're, getting, we're a little bit ahead uh, this year. It's feeling pretty good. And uh, you have, a, what's the name of your accounting practice? Uh, Lear and Pennepacker, CPA firm. We okay. have offices in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. I was there for 15, 16 years. Hamilton, New Jersey. And I run our Pennsylvania Bucks County office. Okay, understood. How long have you been an accountant for? Um, so I'm in my, I think my 18th year of this. Um, I've been with the firm since uh, this firm literally took me right out of the kitchen. Okay. Um, so to kind of a little bit of backstory, uh, the managed partner of our firm, you know, he's been doing this for a little over 40 years. Um, I always joke around. He's been doing debits credit so long since before the credit was around, it was just debits. Right. And um, <laughs> I was actually, I was actually a chef and kind of a pseudo business manager for one of his clients. Okay. And I went to accounting school and was kind of running the restaurant. And then Eric found me in the kitchen Literally, no kidding. At, um, at one of his clients, and um, just kind of worked itself out. When I was kind of done with the restaurant business, Eric hired me. I've been with the firm ever since. Uh, that's great. That's yeah. a great story. How you got into it? How'd you pick such a riveting career like uh, taxes? You know, it kind of it kind of worked. It kind of worked by accident, I guess. Right. Okay. Um, working as a chef, I went to. A, I wanted to just go to straight up business school. Right. So um, in Philadelphia, I lived in Northeast Philly. wasn't a lot of schools to pick from. Um, that I could afford or get into coming from the, from the, from, from with my, you know, reeling, uh, economic or, um, career out of high school. So, sure. um, I applied to a school that was right in our neighborhood called Holy Family. Yeah. Uh, I was going to go there for, uh, just, you know, just basics of, uh, you know, get a BA. And as I got into it, um, I identified that I really liked, uh, the accounting classes for two specific reasons. They were real, like, structured. I like structure because yeah. everything else in my life is not structured. So being in the classroom, I like the structure, and everything has a solid answer. It's not like a philosophical discussion on stuff. Sure. So um, that's how I ended up in accounting, worked in the restaurant business for years, and then it just kind of fell in that I started, you know, doing the books at the end of the night. Then I started doing the books at the end of the month, and I'm doing the payroll, and then I'm doing the ordering. And right. it became that I was doing more debits of credits than I was flipping uh, crab cakes at the time. So it's <laughs> great up here. Yeah. Hey, you're going to find a lot of our audience is self-employed. And then we also have some W-2 people as well. So I want to hit W-2 income really quick. Sure. How in the world do you get your tax liability down? If you're paid on a W-2, because it seems like it's impossible. I go through it with my accountant every year. Yeah, and I tell everybody, there's really no magic bullet on this. The most yeah. important thing is, in your industry, is to be maxing out your 401k, getting your pre-tax deductions in, participating in your 125 plan if you have flexible spending for medical or child care, uh, maxing out the 401k. Absent that, there's really not much else you could do. Tax Cuts and Job Act eliminated the um, unreimbursed employee business expenses. Yeah. So really not much you could do at the federal level, depending on what state you live in. Sometimes you could take those, like in Pennsylvania you can. Sure. But there's really not much you could do, unfortunately, at the W-2 level. You know, working with your employer and kind of getting creative on where the deductions happen, right? If you're entertaining clients, you're bringing them sure. out. Making sure that's getting reimbursed dollar for dollar is really the best way to do now, it. Now, you mentioned the 125 mm -hmm. plan. Now, is that's pre-tax money towards health care expenses? It could be through a myriad of things. I think the original history of the 125 plan, they call them cafeteria plans. Mm -hmm. So if you do a quick Google search, you know, if you Google 125 plans, probably a bunch of stuff comes up that's non-tax. But usually, if you want to take a look at that, that you would Google like, you know, section 125 cafeteria plans. I think the original part of that tax code started where it was if you would put pre-tax money away for, for actually buying, you know, lunch or, or, or you know, sure. your meals while you, while you worked, where you worked. Okay. And um, inside of those 125 plans, you could put, you can, you know, you could designate money for healthcare. You know, I've seen mm. people doing it for childcare. Really, a lot of expenses. You can get pretty flexible, right? It's like a flexible now, spending. What do you account. set up a separate account, or does it have to be through the employer? Usually, the employer sets it up and okay. has to be what I think is called like an employer sponsored plan. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I've seen, you know, I've seen them for travel reimbursements, mm -hmm. you know, more often than not, the 125 plans are almost always medical. Yeah. Cause they give you an option, right? Mm -hmm. An HSA plan, PPO plan. And then they tell you, here's how much can come off your gross income. And that can go towards your deductible or different out of pocket costs that you have, but they limit it, right? It's not an unlimited amount. 
it's limited. Um, every year it kind of changes. I know we just got a big bump this year coming in. And, you know, tax accountants always kind of work in the past. So I mean this year. Right. I actually mean this year, 2023. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, um, I think, it, I th- don't quote me on this, but I think it's somewhere in the range of like seven to nine grand for yeah. a health savings account that you can put away pre-tax. Yep. Now, there's some issues for your self-employed people, and a lot of people mix, kind of miss this up or, or mix it up when they're doing it. If you're self-employed, you're a Schedule C filer, and you want to take advantage of, a, of an HSA, health savings account, you have to be enrolled in a high deductible plan now. Okay. So you, if to, for it to be deductible. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah, and it, it'll actually say. I always joke around with clients. Well, how do I know if it's a high deductible plan? It actually says it on your card now. It'll right. say HSA applicable plan. Hmm. So generally, you know, you take the the health savings account. What that does is it keeps your premiums, um, you know, down low, and then you have the max, higher dollar value out of pocket. So depending hmm. on where you are in your health, you know, makes sense. Your age, you, know, you can put a little more money away. Makes sense. Now, being a mortgage person by trade, you know, I have routinely have conversations with people looking to buy a house to give them. I never give advice. I'm not a CPA, mm-hmm. but I try to lead them through experience down the path of what could potentially be tax deductible for you when you have a mortgage. So if you could speak to that a little bit, Dennis, like, what can you deduct? I buy a house. What's in it for me? Yeah, it's been really tough. I mean, I, and I, I mean, it's been it's actually getting easier to identify what's deductible now, okay. uh, given interest rates are coming up, which is right. pretty interesting. Right. So. So for the last you know ten years, people have been borrowing money, whether they realize it or not. They've been borrowing this money like underneath the inflationary index, and it's been like unbelievable. Right. So if you're a first-time home buyer, last 10, 15 years, and you're buying a house, uh, depending on how much mortgage indebtedness you have, even if your mortgage rate, you know, you have people with sub three percent mortgages across right. the country now. So your mortgage interest wasn't really a big deduction on your tax return. Tax Cuts and Job Act comes in, and it changes the way that the standard deductions and the itemized deductions work. So when you're looking at your first-time home buyer, for years it was always like, oh, your mortgage interest is tax deductible. Tax Cuts and Job Act comes in, and it created such a large standard deduction for taxpayers, like yeah. if you're married filing joint. Like so, 24000 Right. Okay. And if you're not paying, if your mortgage rate is 2.7% or th- even 3%, and you know your total mortgage indebtedness on your first-time home, if you're talking to a first-time home buyer, could be sub three, even sub two. Right. They're not paying enough interest to get above that hump. So it ends up being that they don't get the tax deductible you know, interest expense on their mortgage. Yeah. Now, good qu- question for you on that. So do you automatically, if you're married, filing jointly, get the $24,000 deduction? Yeah, you get it. It, cha- okay. it changes year to year with inflation, but you get the standard deduction right out of the gate. Got it. And it's determined based upon your filing status. So single, head of household, and married filing joint. Okay. So you have that option, or you could technically itemize, deduct everything to see if you're over the 24000 for married fi- filing jointly. However, to your point, it's a great point. Mm-hmm. Rates were so low, people didn't pay 25000 in interest last year, right. right? I think something like 86% of the country is at a rate at 4% or under, like some ridiculous number like that right now. Yeah. And I think it's about that rate that are no longer itemizing for deductions at the moment too, okay. because you know the standard deduction has gotten so high. And it's made tax preparation a little bit easier for the folks that are, you know, self-preparing. Sure. Um, also in that Tax Cuts and Job Act was the SALT limit, where your you know, state and local taxes got capped at $10,000. Mm. And $10,000 in New Jersey real estate taxes, you could hit that in a quarter. You know, I live in Bucks <laughs> County, so a little bit different in Pennsylvania. Right. But in Jersey, you're hitting it so quick that you're really not getting from your home, you know, from a tax yeah. deductible standpoint, to finish that question off, you're really not getting a ton out of your interest at the historical rates we've had last 10 or 15 years, and you're capped at your real estate taxes. And then they cap you at $750,000 for a mortgage loan amount. Right? Exactly right. That, that used okay. to be $1.1 million. Right. Now it's, um, now it's seven hundred and fifty. Yeah. Hey, I just want to kind of take a little bit of a step back, and I want to talk about tax deduction and mm-hmm. what it means, right? Because people throw the term around. You can be at a grocery store, people are throwing, hey, it's tax deductible, this. What does it really mean? Uh, so the way I explain it, and I, 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 I'm going to give you kind of a reference here. So I, yeah. a client called me two weeks ago, brand new client. Um, they went out right over Christmas time and you know, they, they walked out of their old accounting firm in like October, November. Old accountant said, hey, your taxes are going to be $20,000 this year, you're going to owe it for your fourth quarter payment, which mm-hmm. is January 15th. Okay. So something happens in that relationship. They walk out, they engage me. They tell me, hey, I just bought a car for $20,000. I don't owe any, I'm going to write this thing off. I'm not going to owe any tax. Right. And a lot of people kind of misconstrue, you know, your tax deduction, like this, this accountant told them their tax, you know, their tax is going to be 20 G's. They went out and bought a car for $20,000 thinking that it was going to be a one for one match. Yeah. And that's not the way it works. Right. right. So to kind of, 
answered her question like I explained it to her is depending on where your marginal tax bracket is, you're going to save like a percentage on the dollar of everything you do. So I tell most of my clients who are self-employed, I just use the 35%. So if you're gonna buy if you're gonna buy a hundred thousand dollar SUV, you're gonna save thirty five thousand dollars in tax on that bad boy at thirty five percent. So that's the way I kind of look at things. Okay, and so and you'll save it just so everyone's clear. It's thirty five thousand dollars in tax liability that would right? that would be it's mitigated gonna, by that large capital. It's gonna purchase. drop that adjusted gross income you by. It. $35,000. It's going to, oh, it's going to drop the adjusted gross income by yeah. the full amount that you're buying the, the truck or the car for or okay. whatever you're buying. And, um, that for that, self-employed, yeah, right, yeah, for right. self-employed, it's going to drop it. And then that's going to give you the 35% tax savings on that reduction in taxable right. income. And you know, the other thing that it has impact is it could potentially put you into a lower tax bracket. It can. Sometimes that happens. Most of the time it doesn't. <laughs> you know, it depends where your income is. Yeah. And, you know, if, if that's an opportunity that we have, you know, sometimes we do work in that space, right? If a client calls us with enough time at the end of the, at the, end of the tax year, mm-hmm. and this could be something we're discussing like New Year's Eve. Yeah. Very common for me to be on the phone uh, almost until that ball drops talking about, you know, what they're doing. And they're still buying assets, trying to figure things out. And depending on where things go, you know, we're actually kind of working it all the way down to the line there to try and figure out where the best tax saving is and when to buy it or, or what to do with it. Now, the clients that you work with, do they reach out to you if they're self-employed? They reach out to you quarterly to say, hey, listen, this is what I got, I got going on. Here's my tax liability. It's a little bit more than that. Okay. Um, the way I sell my, you know, my services and I think where our firm is a little different than most yeah. is I always say it's, we're a minimum of five touches a year. And that includes your tax preparation. So that means if you meet with me for your tax prep or we do a Zoom or you're doing a drop-off, you want to talk to me at least four times during the year. We're better at at giving you proactive tax advice than after the fact. And a lot of people, you know, don't want that. They just want the quarterly estimates and they want to walk out the door and deal with me next year, which is cool. We do that, but that's not really where the value is in the relationship. It's meeting with everybody about two weeks before that tax liability payments due for your quarterly for mostly for the self-employed people and kind of figuring out what what's going on. Okay. Yeah, we got to talk later, Dennis. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Let's do it. So from a W-2 standpoint, they give you an option when you complete the W-4 form mm-hmm. when you're working for a company. And that W-4 form is basically what is your what are your dependents, your head of household, everything like that. So the advice that I had received at some point in time, having owed many, many, many times, was if you claim zero on it, then they're going to take out the maximum amount of taxes and you shouldn't have to owe necessarily at the end of the year. And I know I'm simplifying it. So I know it's more complicated than that. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, so the, the lower, you know, if you file, for example, single zero, yeah. you're going to have the, you know, let me, let me think about this. So if you walk in, they changed all these rules. The W4 form used to be kind of this real easy form. Mm-hmm. And I think the last, two years ago, they, they completely changed it. It's like 10 it. questions on it. It's gotten ridiculous. <laughs> so it's funny you should mention it. Yeah. So here's what I tell clients when they call me, yeah. hey, Dan, I need my W4 done. I'm changing employers. I say, listen, talk to HR and tell them you want 28% withheld on every paycheck, irregardless of bonuses, regular compensation, everything you want, 28%, we're kind of good. Okay. So I tend to approach it that way. Most mm. HR agencies will require you to fill out the W-4 form. Right. And the more dependents you put on there, the less withholding you'll have. Right. Um, so you know, I right. always kind of look at it that way. Now, there are tables and there's calculators all over the place. The IRS actually has a pretty good calculator, and it'll spit out the W-4 form completely filled out for Oh, you. that's great you advice for people. Yeah. You go to the IRS and it'll give you what you need to Exactly right. Yeah. So you can go to their website. You can pump it out. Any accountant can do them for you. I, I do them. Uh, don't mind doing them, but usually it's as easy as calling the HR people and, you know, or, or, or working with the HR representative. Say, hey, listen, I'm in the 25% tax bracket. I want everything with a 25% federal, 5% New Jersey, and I'm good. Right. Now, that's fantastic advice because for, I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm like an extremist. So originally, you know, maybe I have four kids. I have wife, four kids, had a household, and I'm claiming a bunch of dependents on it, and they were never taking enough taxes out. Yeah. So by the end of the year, it was like this big bill that I got from the IRS, and obviously you have, you have to pay the bill. And I went the total extreme other way. It was like, okay, well, I'm just going to claim nobody, and then I get money back at the end of the year. But I, the, to me, there's got to be like a fine balance in there. I always joke around. I say $1,500 one way or the other way is kind of the sweet spot for, okay. for earners in, in, in our area here in Jersey, PA. So I try and work it that you're either going to owe them $1,500 or you're going to get $1,500 back. And you can test that throughout the year, right? Okay. And if you're working with your tax preparer, you want to be talking to that person a couple times a year to make sure this is good. Sure. So very often what I'll do is if it's somebody just coming in with a W-2 earner, uh, somebody that's in your industry, I might say, hey, listen, 
right around June, I'm going to throw something on the calendar. I'm going to ask you to send me your most recent pay stub. You know, mm. it's kind of an automatic reminder. Hits Great. both of us. We take a look at it. We do a quick analysis. on. Per, I just do a percentage analysis, yeah. see where it's at, and then I can modify it as I need it from there. So usually you want to take a look at that at least once a year to prevent, you know, you don't want to give the IRS. Well, some people like doing that. I don't, I don't like it. Some people like using it as kind of a forced savings vehicle, and they use yeah. that as their vacation money or whatever they want to do with it. I kind of low-key hate it, right? Because I feel like you've been holding my money all year. Oh, I don't like giving them any money. Yeah, I don't right? like giving them money earlier than I need I to. I feel like you know? now i got to wait for you. Yeah. <laughs> so I made all this, and now i got to wait yeah. for you, and I routinely file late in the year, so... And if you, the later you file in a year, sometimes the IRS, like you saw in the last couple of years, got overwhelmed with, yeah. with backlog. Yep. And then you end up waiting for your tax money right. back. And that, I just never like clients in that position where, you know, you're waiting. I have, you know, it's sometimes it's possible for clients to be waiting 30 to 90 days for, yeah. for their tax refund. And if they need that money for survival, it becomes like a problem, you know, sure. and I feel bad for them. So, yeah, take a look at it at least, you know, at least once a year or something I recommend. Now, do you recommend people to try to get their taxes done as quickly as possible before the 15th deadline? You know, Is it's it, uh, what before April. Yeah, before April fifteenth. It's almost impossible to do that today. Yeah. Um, unless it's just a W two earner, right? Like right. we have people that are just W two earners. We've been pumping those returns out all week, and we started doing them. I'm going to guess for like the third week mm-hmm. of uh, of January this year, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, for those people, absolutely as early as possible. The problem becomes is. If you have any sort of investments today with any broker dealer and you're waiting for a 1099, often what happens is those 1099s come in around mid-February. Right. Often they come in with a disclaimer on them basically saying, hey, there's international exposure here. And there's international exposure in all these mutual funds and ETFs today. It's almost it's almost impossible to avoid any sort of international exposure with like a an asset-based allocation okay. in a mutual fund for these asset-based funds. And what'll happen is we get a disclaimer on the 1099 that basically says this may or may not be amended in the future hmm. for qualifying and ordinary dividends. So what I often see, and I tell my clients, is if I see that disclaimer on there, I tell the client, hey, we have everything. We're going to draft the return in February. I'm going to wait until March 15th because that's yeah. when they're going to do a secondary review in these 1099s. And I'd say 85 to 90% of the time, these 1099s are being amended. So if we rush to get that return out, we may have to amend that thing. And I don't want to have my clients pay yeah, for Yeah, that's actually a really great point. You kind of break that down for everyone so they, they, they understand it. So if someone's receiving a 1099 from investments, that mm-hmm. means basically you're getting some type of a dividend, capital gain, something like yep. that. You get that 1099 form. And if there's international money associated with that, that 1099 could change. It can change, and it, it can change in a multitude of ways. Yeah. Um, the, it, the, a capital gain can be recategorized as ordinary income or a regular dividend. Yeah. An ordinary dividend, which is taxed at ordinary rates, may not be classified as a qualifying dividend, and obviously qualifying dividends are like the prettiest picture. That's what we want to see. Right. Those are taxed at reduced rates. So, yeah, depending on how complex the reporting is inside of whatever the investment vehicle is inside the broker-dealer, um, it you know can indicate that we're going to be kind of pumping hmm. the brakes on these tax tax filings, yeah. and that's what I tend to do is prep them and then hold them until that secondary right. release of the 1099s comes out. Yeah, this is why it's so important to speak to a professional about it, so you understand the different nuances of uh, the field, the industry. How do you feel from a tax benefit standpoint about vacation homes or investment properties? Um, so it depends on it, it. It depends on a multitude of things, right? From a ta- just strictly a tax perspective. Yes. All right. Strictly a tax perspective, um, a vacation home is not really gonna gonna get you much as far of in, in the way of tax deductions, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're using it for personal purposes. Right. Obviously, you know, you get. I think you get two weeks now. It's either ten days or two weeks. You can rent it a year, and you don't have to disclose it to the IRS. Right. Outside of that, it's really not going to be uh, much of a tax benefit. If you're a W two earner and you're earning over 150 grand, any deductions you have on that is going to get held, and it's not going to be deductible. Now, if it's a vacation home, does the tax deductibility of the interest does that get added to the primary residence as well? Like, is it one if lump sum? Yeah, if it's a vacation home, it's okay. it's it's your secondary residence. So right. you're still at that 750 G's that makes and sense. you're not going to be able to deduct it. Yeah. I mean, so I always tell clients, you know, when you're looking at buying a vacation home, talk, you're an investment advisor and right. make sure this makes sense in your global act, you know, your global asset allocation, because you're sure. putting a ton in real estate. Everybody, you know, I'm from Philly. Everybody wants to buy a house and Wildwood, you know, does a Wildwood <laughs> purchase really work yeah. with your asset? You know, if you're in your forties and you're going to be retiring in the next 20 years, do you want, you know, a $350,000 condo in your kind of investment pool? Are you pulling that out of your 401k contributions to satisfy those mortgage payments? That's what I tell people all the time. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, how about from an investment property standpoint? So investment properties are a totally different ball game. So there's kind of two roads and two paths with investment properties. You've got your real estate professionals kind of on the left 
left here, and that's probably like you know 10% of my clients. And then you know your W-2 earners who have full-time jobs to buy investment properties, and that's like that like 90% pool that's here on the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that are in that pool can really they can take advantage of um, uh, uh, you know of of a rental property and, and holding it, especially if it's obviously you know a commercial based rental that has high yield. Um, you can take depreciation against it, and that depreciation, which is a non-cash expense, can be a really nice, um, you know, preventative measure for paying yeah. income taxes on the gross rents you're receiving. So, from an investment property standpoint, depending on what type of investment yield you're getting yeah. from this, it can be very helpful. You know, and I just throw out there from a mortgage standpoint, when you look at depreciation on mm-hmm. investment property. You know, people are itemizing a lot of deductions on investment property and probably not showing that much of a profit on it. So if they need any income to qualify for a mortgage that they're doing, you can actually add depreciation back in as income and you can use that because it's really just a paper loss on it. Yeah. And I actually call that out on the tax returns. I'll actually put in the letter, add back depreciation for rental property X is $23,000. This way it prevents guys like you calling me up at at 10 o'clock at night going, where's the depreciation? I can't find it. I call it out there because it's a major add back. And as you know, in your industry, the easier that is to call out the better. Now that's funny you bring that up because often people self-prepare their returns, right? Yeah. And they'll do a, let's say they have a rental property, you know, in, in Philly, we've kind of got the, uh, you know, we got the, the residential property on top and you've got the, um, you know, commercial property on the bottom. I think sure. we call it like Walt Whitman zoning or something in Philadelphia. I forget exactly what they call okay. it. But you got a property. It's got like two different types of yields in it. You got, you know, big depreciation numbers. Sure. Let's say your tenant leaves, it's COVID, you know, all been in there, you spend $35,000 rehabbing the place, right? Very common. I see a lot of people self-preparing you know, they'll prepare to return. Repairs are maintenance, it's $25,000. Right. They go to get a mortgage and they can't add that back. Right. So working with the taxpayer who understands what needs to be capitalized and what can be written off is really critical. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, this time of year from a mortgage standpoint, I talk to a lot of self-employed people mm-hmm. and I get really good relationships with their accountant so we can understand exactly what's going on if their plan is to buy a house in the upcoming year, whether or not it's investment, second home, or yeah. primary residence. Mm-hmm. From a, uh, an investment property standpoint, do you think it's beneficial well, more beneficial one way or the other to be reporting it on a Schedule E, or should people be in an LLC? Is there any tax advantage? Um, so that's it's a great question, great topic, man. I love talking about this. So um, putting it inside of, you know, all, all the rental properties are going to show up on a Schedule E, regardless if you own it personally or if it's a single-member LLC. Okay. So if it's a single-member LLC, it's actually called a disregarded entity for tax purposes. Okay. In essence, it doesn't, it doesn't have any effect on the filing. So if I own a rental property and I own it, you know, me and my wife, and we're filing a Schedule E, if we have that thing in an LLC we own, it's going to show up, you know, if it's a single-member LLC that I own, it's going to show up on that Schedule E. The tax deduction is going to be exactly the same. Yeah. Um, if we take that thing and now we make it, you know, a double-member LLC and it's inside of a 1065 filer, um, it's going to be off of your tax return to a point. It's still a pass-through entity, but it's going to actually rate, it's going to, in our opinion, I, you know, I think it's, I'm confident to say this about our firm, <laughs> If you, if you put it inside of a double-member LLC, it's kind of removing it from your tax return. Yeah. And in my opinion, it reduces your overall audit risk on that because it's consolidating it up. It also gives you kind of the opportunity to have all of your LLCs kind of inside of one holding company so sure. you, or, or all of your rental properties inside of one holding company. So from a tax deductibility standpoint, you know, if you're still in that 90% and it's investment person, uh, not not going to be a major tax savings. It's going to continue to add legal liability, which yeah. is what you want, obviously, if somebody gets hurt in a property. Right. And in our opinion, it makes it easier if you want to go to sell it, if you want to sell membership units of the LLC mm-hmm. instead of retitling the property and things like that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, if, you, if it's a multiple member uh, LLC and you're filing on a 1065, mm-hmm. can it be husband and wife? If you're filing a joint personal return, yeah. So if you okay. uh, if you have a husband and wife who own, open an LLC together, yeah, um, they can file their own 1065, you know, Got 50 it. 50 or however the ownership is, and then you know that becomes a pass through entity, and they receive a K one on the net rental yep. income or expense or loss that's left on that thing. That's fantastic. You know a lot. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. You know, this yeah. is what I like to talk about in the yeah. afternoon in Jersey. You I grew up in like South that? Boston area. You'd be wicked smart. <laughs> uh, nice. I won't hold it against you that you like Philadelphia. Hey, it's all right. From the town, kind of can't get. <laughs> out of my blood it's in my veins so you know it is what it is uh, so I, we're going to take a quick break it's greg wareham again dennis kilfather we'll be back in a few minutes stay tuned
tuned for this though, because we're going to really start to get into the self-employed income, talk about real estate agents and different types of businesses. So we'll be right back at you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Your Mortgage Process. I'm Greg Wareham. We have Dennis Kilfeather today, expert in accounting. So we're talking a little bit off air about the fine line between accounting and financial planning, because there's a, there, there's a, a gray, I don't say gray area, but they're connected. Yeah, they're definitely connected. Um, our firm, so our, our firm has never really done what I would call asset management. We do, we do do financial planning. Um, a lot of firms out there prepare your tax returns, you sit down with them, and then they're trying to sell you life insurance or an annuity. And I always question myself, you know, is that is that an accounting firm? Are they a tax preparation firm? Or are they kind of an investment advisory firm kind of masquerading in the tax space? Right. And in some instances, I'm sure that works for some guys. You know, you go, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a self-employed individual, you meet with your accountant, he also helps you fund your IRA. It's a one, one-stop shop. But I just, in, in my opinion, at our firm, I think we do what we do well, right? We're your right. tax advisors and we're kind of guiding that ship and helping you kind of identify, you know, what's ahead of you on that tax journey. Right. And while we can absolutely help with financial planning and we do do financial plans for people, more often than not, what we like to do is work with the investment advisor and right. kind of create that, like I call it that like triangle approach where you yeah. have the client at the top, the financial advisor on the left and the tax accountant on the right. And in the middle somewhere is like an estate planning or attorney or yeah. somebody in the okay. middle Makes and sense. kind of going back and forth and helping with yeah. that. I'm going to insert mortgage person into that circle. I'm sorry. Absolutely. We're going to go to a square. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Absolutely. Sorry. I cut you out of there. Yeah. Right. So I want to talk about self-employed people. A lot of our listeners are self-employed. And when you're self-employed, you have a few different options as to how you're setting up your company, right? You could be a sole proprietor, subchapter S Corp, C Corp, LLC. What do you think? What are the pros and what are the cons? Could you talk a little bit about that, Dennis? Yeah, I could talk about it all day, baby. So right. um, my favorite thing to talk about with this is to do the LLC, right? If you're okay. if you're if you're able to be self-employed, depending on how your agreement is with you know the mother organization, like you, you, with you, you're in correspondent lending. Sometimes you can't do it. If you can, you're going to open up your own shop. I had a guy come in three weeks ago opening up an electrical contracting business. He walks in my door, says, "Dan, I'm opening up an electrical contracting business. I got my insurance. I got my license with Pennsylvania. I'm ready to go." What kind of an you know what kind of an entity do I want to set up? Hands down, I want to do an LLC right out the gate. Right. Uh, the reason I like the LLC so much is it's really dynamic. It's easy to form. It's cheap. Gives right. great liability protection if you use it right. But the biggest thing is to go back to your kind of that, that first question you posed: What type of an entity? An LLC can elect tax treatment across the board. It can elect to be tax treated as an S corporation, C corporation, partnership. So it's really dynamic. And then it can change down the line. You know, every five years, if you wanted to do that, you can change your, your tax treatment of the LLC itself. So more often than not, clients come in, we're setting them up, you know, a single member LLC, and then we're determining what we want to do with it from there. Interesting. So why would someone then opt to go with, say, a subchapter S corp? So subchapter S corps are you know, it depends on what they're doing and how their income is coming in. Okay. So subchapter S, let's just kind of go back a minute. So when you form an LLC, if it's taxed as a sole proprietorship, meaning it's a disregarded entity, it's kind of subject to three types of tax. You've got self-employment tax, which is a portion of your federal and federal income tax. Together, you'll file that with your 1040. And then it's got your state income tax filing, which is your third one. So you're going to have three taxes associated with a sole proprietorship or a single member LLC, which is a disregarded entity tax that way. Mm -hmm. The S corporation is not subject to self-employment tax. So if you go back to that triad, self-employment tax, federal income tax, state income tax, you're S corporation is only going to have federal income tax and state income tax. Mm -hmm. So you can save a little bit there on self-employment tax, but if you take a subchapter S and it has earnings, you have to take a salary that's reasonable in the circumstances for the IRS code, and you'll have to pay payroll taxes at the employer and the employee level. And when you do that, that's essentially equivalent to your self-employment tax. So the issue is making sure you're working with your tax preparer and identifying the salary that's reasonable in the circumstances. And once you do mm -hmm. that and you set that and you're comfortable with it, any other income from that S corporation that falls to your tax return via your K-1 is not going to be subject to self-employment tax. That's a fantastic point. So when you're paying yourself that salary, then you're technically got to pay yourself on a W-2. You do. And now you're subject to the payroll taxes and everything else that goes along you with that. You do. But also, you can yeah. set yourself up with a 401k. You can yeah, do a unik solo 401k. So if, let's say you're cutting yourself a salary of you know $100,000, um, you're going to do defer 
you could defer, let's just say, in, in just ease of math, you're going to defer 20 grand in your 401k. On your tax return, you're only paying tax on 80 Gs right out of the gates. You're right. already getting a huge tax deduction. So kind of doing the sub S corporation, working with an investment advisor, setting up a single member LLC or a UNIK, or it could be a multiple member LLC. And then there's also things you could do inside of the 401k. It's just unbelievable dynamic tool i get so excited about this yeah. right is inside of the 401k you've got like safe harbor 401ks you can do employee matches employer matches you can do cash balance plan bolt-ons which are like defined benefit pensions inside of these 401ks and your sole proprietor your electrical contractor this guy who came into my office we're going to do all this for him in 2023 that's fantastic so you can maximize your tax deductibility of money absolutely in that yeah that's that's great and you drive the ship with being self-employed right so yeah. you know if i want to do my 401k now and I'm a W2 earner, I got to do my 401k week to week. You know what I mean? It has to come out now. Right. Whereas if you're going to be self-employed person and you're doing a self-employed pension, a SEP or a simple, you have until you file that tax return to fund your IRA. So you can kind of use next year's cash flow mm -hmm. to take advantage of a tax deduction from the prior year. Right. So it's really kind of a leveraged opportunity there for being self-employed versus W2. So now when you look at things from a SEP IRA standpoint, you know, what I've noticed from my, my wife's self-employed and the accountant tells us at the, you know, but when we file our taxes, what her maximum contribution could be. Mm -hmm. And, it, and I never understood it. Right. I'm like, well, why can't you just, cause I know the tax code is going to allow for X amount, but yeah. you can't necessarily maximize it. You can't. Um, so in those instances, a SEP is, is a, is a very simple tool, right? Yep. Um, the IRS indicates that you can put away 25% of your self-employed earnings into a SEP, and it kind of okay. stops there. Um, that's why I'm not a huge fan of SEPs, because okay. they're a little bit, you know, they, they kind of, they hinder your ability to put more away in retirement and take advantage of your tax savings. That's why I'm a huge fan of doing a UNIK or a solo 401k right. or something like that. And to do that, you have to have a subchapter S corp. To do uh, those things? No, to do a to do a Unike, you don't need to be a subchapter S. You can be taxed as a sole proprietorship. Huh. You just need to work with an investment advisor to create a four hundred one k plan. Right, and then you could do you know you could be a solo you can have a solo four hundred one k inside of a single member LLC taxed as a C corporation doing you know a four hundred one k with a profit share um, and a defined benefit cash balance plan right on top of it to get the maximum tax savings. Now on the on the SEP IRA, can you like if you just just use gross receipts right as a hundred thousand. But you can't use 25% of that and put it into the SEP IRA. It seems like there's some other calculations that go into play. A lot of other calculations. So okay. if gross receipts are 100 Gs and you have you know, $75,000 in expenses, you're now stuck with $25,000 in net income. I say. So it's the, the, the amount that you could put away into your SEP is going to be a calculation based on the $25,000 net income of the schedule C. All itself. right. That, ma that makes perfect yeah. sense. With so other that, limitations. So well, that's why it sounds be. so good that you got to talk to you, right? To understand what your other options are right. potentially. In now, it. in that same circumstance, maybe selecting either a simple IRA or a, or a 401k can allow you to get more put in. Right. So again, it depends on, you know, who you're sitting with, when you're doing your taxes, you know, you don't just drop your stuff off for me to take a look at your returns. We're going to optimize what the best opportunity is for you to put it away. And most tax practitioners never look at a simple. Right. Uh, and that's a different type of an IRA. So, mm. and that often you could put a little bit more money away. So taking a look at the myriad of options when you're in that process sure. is really important. That's why I tell clients, you got to talk to me four times a year so I see what's going on. I love this guy, Dick. <laughs> you know your stuff, Dennis. Uh, thanks, Great to have you thanks. on the show. So... All right. So I'm self-employed. I'm going to use a real estate agent as an example. Okay. Like what can you deduct? So real estate agents are, and I know you work with a lot of yeah, real estate and they're agents. some of my favorite clients, man. Yeah. And they're also some of, um, you know, um, some of our more frustrating clients, uh, realtors are tend to be like alphas are just on the move. They just want to <laughs> knock block tackle and go. Right? right. So you take that person, they're unbelievable at closing deals. You know, I've seen some of the best business negotiators as realtors in my life. And it's just unbelievable. That type of person doesn't like to be in the nitty gritty of details. So they don't like to uh, track their income and the expenses. Right. So for realtors, what I often say is if that's the person you are, what we try and do is isolate all of your banking activity for the real estate activities to one account. We set something up like QuickBooks Online, and everything that goes through that, we know we could track nice and easy to track your expenses. Now, the expenses for that realtor could be a myriad of things. It could be obviously the, the, the basic stuff, you know, your MLS fees, your dues, your subscriptions. If you have desk fees, most of it can be your travel back and forth. And another mm -hmm. thing realtors don't do a great job of is tracking their mileage, right? It's right. kind of a pain. Not everybody likes to track their mileage on a daily basis. You get a software suite like Mileage I 
IQ or even QuickBooks Self-Employed has a mileage tracker in there and you identify what was a business travel and what was personal and it does the allocations and it sends these beautiful reports for me to calculate mm. what your tax deductibles, uh, deductible items are. So realtors can have, you know, office expenses, they can have cars, yeah. um, you know, depending on what their relationship is with the broker. Again, they can have desk fees. Sometimes they can do business use at home. If they're if they're not associated with a branch and they're not actually paying a desk fee and they don't have an office and they're working out of their house, they can do business use at home there. That's great. That's great for people to know that. Mm -hmm. Now, do you suggest that they set up a separate business account? Or can it just be a personal? It can, yeah, it could be. It could be a personal account. I just try and isolate it right. because it becomes difficult for, for people that are again that that person I described, the block yeah. attack leaders out there making deals. They're not really going to be, in my opinion, they're not great at kind of identifying. All right, I'm going to spend. You know, my marketing is going to come off this Amex card or this. They have right. like an Amex card, a Visa. They got their personal bank accounts, debit cards. You know, they go away. They're taking clients out. They're they're getting gas on one card. It's it's a myriad. It's a mess to try right. to track. So what I try and do is just be as diligent as possible. Put this thing in one account right. and a credit card. You know, but let us track it and only do your business stuff in there. Yeah. So the income comes into that account and your expenses come out. And w when you want to take money out, just distribute it to your personal accounts. It makes it way easier to track. And the big issue is right. These blockers and tacklers they move so fast. I worry that we lose deductions because we don't capture it. Yes. That's the big, yes. that's the frustration, right? When I say sometimes these are some of my most frustrating clients is they come in and they have nothing but their 1099 that they got from the broker yeah. dealer. Yeah, no, I can completely see that just from personal experience. You know, when you're out there, you're driving, you're driving, you're driving everything. You, I, I know that you miss deductions. Oh, yeah, it's day and night. Because it's almost like you don't have time to track it, even though you should have the time to track everything. I love your idea about setting up a separate account. I mean, one thing I would throw out there in reference to setting up a business account versus a personal account. Well, now, because you're self-employed, if you're paying something like your car payment through there and you got 12 months proof, that the business is paying for your car, you don't have to count against their debt-to-income ratio when they look to buy a house. Oh, that's see, that's why it's beautiful to have somebody like you look at this. It's not just depreciation. Look at that. I just found another ad. Yeah, it's in the personal account. It's it's terrible. You can't track it. Fannie Mae doesn't like it. But okay. business account, super clear on it. What else could be in there? Even the credit cards. Okay. So if your credit card bills are being paid out of that business account for a 12-month time frame, you can ignore that debt from, from them as well. Wow, that's so, unbelievable. Yeah, so it's really credit cards and car payments. So isolating the accounts actually helps with the debt service coverage ratio? It, it, does, it does. And the key is business account. Awesome. Because Fannie Mae's real specific with it's got to be a business account. Awesome. And you just taught me something. That's great, Greg. Thanks for telling me that, man. I'll tell everybody, make sure it's in a business account. Yeah, my pleasure. Mm -hmm. Have them call me. All right, no problem. So what else do you think we need to know, Dennis? About us uh, or taxes in general? Let's start with taxes in general, then all about you. Um, so taxes in general right now, I think a hot item that everybody seems to kind of uh, want information on are, you know, if you have an investment property um, and, and you're trying to take advantage of, of depreciation is I get these calls a lot now. Uh, are what are called cost segregation studies. Okay. And there are engineering firms out there that you can hire to come in and take a look at your property. And they basically look around, like I look around at this room and inside of this, you know, a commercial building, 39 and a half years is how you depreciate it. So right. if you buy the building, we divide it by 39 and a half mm -hmm. years. But the issue is if you have a cost segregation study, what he's ceiling tiles are probably seven year assets and they cost X. So if we bought this property for a million dollars, we bring a cost segregation study team in, and what they do is they take that million dollars and they basically put it into pie slices for us. Mm. And they basically tell the accountants that, okay, this is the portion of the, the, the million-dollar asset you bought that we can deduct in seven years. Here's the amount that we can do at 10, 15, mm. and here's your 39-and-a-half-year bucket. And what you want to do is, in a perfect environment, is that 39-and-a-half-year bucket goes down and the quicker depreciation ones go up, and that allows you to take advantage of depreciation in earlier years of holding the asset and getting the actual non-cash expense deduction that's, this year. That's great advice. And that was on commercial properties, correct? It could be like, on commercial or, it could or be residential. It could be on both. Because there's different ways that you can depreciate it, to your point. Right. Residential is 27 and a half years. Okay. Um, so, you know, I do have clients that have a multitude of properties inside of, um, you know, they buy LLC, they open up LLCs and they start acquiring properties, you know. In Philadelphia, you have a lot of people doing that. It's very common for somebody to have five or six rental properties inside of one LLC. And yes, you can have a, a cost segregation study come in on each individual property to identify, okay, this is HVAC, this is electrical. And the engineers give you a, a report 
and then right. indicates the uh, IRS deductible portion for, for huh. those assets inside of the asset you got. So it's really cool. I mean, it's, it seems critical that you should really have that done because the cost is going to pay for itself. It often pays for itself almost immediately. Right. And what's really nice about these, they've gotten so good at doing these, they tell you the, they tell you the cost and, and when you're going to get your benefit. And it's almost like, you know, month six. It happens really right. quick. So I have a question for you on a single family residential property that you're selling. Say that you purchased a property 10 years ago for $400,000. Okay. And, you know, since that, to now you owe about 250000 on it, right? Okay. Now, during that time, you sunk a lot of money into that house. Now, that money was all accounted for each tax year, I take it? It should and be. deductions? Okay. Yeah. You should be talking to your guy like me and say, hey, Dan, I put a roof on for 25 Gs, and that gets added to your basis at that 400 Okay. Get. So then when you sell it, now you have a, a $150,000 capital gain, no matter how you look at it. Right. Um, well, if we didn't appreciate the full amount of that roof, okay. And I mean, so we bought the property for four hundred in your example, and yep. we sold it for two fifty. We sold it for two fifty, so we're taking a loss. Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. Okay. No, no, I apologize. You're selling it for five fifty. All right, so we're selling it for five fifty that we bought for four hundred. We yes. got a hundred fifty thousand dollar loss. If in that time period I put a roof on for twenty five thousand dollars, that twenty five thousand dollars comes off the capital gain. Mm-hmm. Now you'll place your roof in service. They're twenty. You know, what's a roof? 20, 30-year assets. Right. So that'll be divisible by 27 and a half. But let's say in year four, I put the roof on for 25000 and I sold it in year five. Right. That $25,000 is going to come off your capital gain of 150 in that example. Now, so in your, would your capital gain in that example be the difference between what you're selling it for and what you owe on it? No, absolutely not. Okay. This is something that always yeah. comes up. So, yep. you know, in accountants, we're historians. That's all we really care about is history. <laughs> so, so the way I explain this is, you know, you buy the property for four hundred grand. Anything you do to that property, you know, repairs and maintenance, we're deducting year and year. Any capital improvement gets put into it. So in this example, you know, you bought the property for four hundred grand. You hold it for ten years. You put a hundred thousand dollars improvements on it. And right. over ten years, that's very common. It's ten thousand dollars a year. You know, you do a bathroom today. It's twenty five G's. Sure. So now you've got your property. It's five hundred thousand dollars. You're going to sell that thing for seven hundred and fifty. Your capital gain calculation starts at the sale price of seven hundred and fifty, mm-hmm. and that historical cost basis. That's why I joke around. Accounts are historians. Yeah. So you take that seven fifty. You back out the five hundred, which is your your cost basis in the property. Then we take off the selling expenses, your realtor fees, and everything like that comes off. All right, makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. Yep. Again, you're a great guy to talk to about that. If Thanks, you have investment man. properties out there, what the opportunities are with investment properties? How what do you do with them, right? The single entity LLC, you know, how you're structuring everything. Yeah. It's critical. The opportunity zone is just unbelievable. And yeah. for guys in your in your industry, you know, um, to be able to take advantage of these interest rates, which are, you know, you know I kind of have this conversation. You know, I bought my first house in 2005. I think my interest rate was almost 9%. Mm-hmm. 2005 might seem like a long time ago to some people, but for me, you know, it doesn't seem like that long It wasn't ago. that long ago. I know. It was so, like yesterday. And interest, <laughs> yeah, and interest, exactly right. Yeah, especially when you have four kids like right. you. You know, you're keeping real busy. It feels literally like yesterday. So, I mean, these interest rates are not that high still. Right. They're still at historical lows. And everybody, you know, in the media, everybody kind of gets all upset about it. Oh, you know, the 30-year rate's up to 7%. And I'm of the opinion, that's all still good. And it's really great money, depending on right. where it is, you know. And what I try and look at in these qualifying opportunity zones is, you know, taking a look at where the rates are. And in the qualifying opportunity zones, because you're going to position that for tax-deferred gain and tax-deferred growth, build an 8% interest rate into not paying income taxes on a property that you hold for 10 years in a qualifying opportunity zone. And it's like a non-issue. Right. So often you need to kind of take a look, you know, when, when I say you, I mean, you know, the person who's buying the property, identify kind of what's going on and don't get all hyped up on, oh my God, a year ago, interest rates were three and a half and now I'm paying seven and a quarter. Well, what are you doing with that money and what kind of yield are you getting with it? To kind of look at the overall objective here. And sure. you, know, you said a qualified opportunity zone, with the QOZ, where you may not be paying federal income tax on a long-term capital gain that you hold for 10 years, right? what does an interest rate of 7% yeah, it doesn't matter? matter. It right? doesn't matter. Because you're looking at your total you know, return on yield over that yes. thing. And if you're not paying you know, 15 to 25% in long-term capital gains rates, to me, it kind of it kind of all comes no, out at the end. That, that's a great point. I mean, because you're going to get the deductib- deductibility of all of that interest and everything like that. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense. Now, are you seeing a lot of um, commercial lending right now? Are you seeing mostly residential? Yeah, not that much. Mostly residential. Yeah. And what are we looking at? Are we looking at, um, you know, on the residential side, where, uh, rates to... They've come down a little bit. So they peaked at close to 8% if you go back a, a couple few months ago. Okay. So we're now... Uh, 
10 consecutive weeks of being under 7%. They're right around six and a half, depending on down payment, depending on exact credit score. But I mean, if you're you, to really optimize that zone on it, Dennis, if on a conventional conforming residential loan, if you have a 740 credit score with 40% down, that's going to give you the best interest rate. But now you're looking at something where you may be able to even crack into the fi- high fives on it. I mean, that's unbelievable. And that's still really low yeah. money. Cost of capital for that's great. Now, your ability to be able to deduct that interest grows because your mortgage indebtedness now is most likely higher than it was before. Right. So if you're at 5.25% on a 30-year primary residence and you're deducting $20,000 in interest at your marginal tax rate at 35%, you know, if you do that math and kind of figure it out on the fly, your realized interest rate affected after taxes is probably 4 four and a quarter, yep. which is unbelievably free money. I mean, you can get a, you can get a CD today for almost 5%. Yeah, that's great so that point. means you're yep. borrowing money underneath the savings rate. And that's where you develop long-term growth. And that's how you build wealth, wealth right? Yeah. And that's the problem I think a lot of people miss is how do I, how do I build the wealth over long-term? It's like, you got to take advantage of borrowing the money and getting the yield you need from it. And you know, along those lines is from a consumer standpoint, understanding that it's, it's complicated. Like behind the scenes, what the real value is of something, it's complicated. You got to know, to your point about interest rate on a house, and you have to understand the tax deductibility. You have to understand the whole picture in order to make a really educated decision on it. Yeah, and then people are meeting with you to try and figure this out, right? Are you yeah. doing a lot of first-time home buyers, or is it we've seen a, We've seen a lot of it in the marketplace. You know, it's really shifted. A lot of the first-time home buyers, Dennis, they were, I don't like to say priced out of the market, they were termed out of the market. Because yep. if your average first-time home buyer is putting down 10%, the market we just came out of that's now shifted, well, there were other people that were step-up buyers, they were putting down 40%. Or they are paying cash, right? Yeah, or they are paying a lot of cash. Wild. I don't know where all this cash came yeah, from, but there's yeah, a lot of cash yeah. out there. Uh, so it's more first-time home buyers, and it really has the biggest pent-up demand. When you look at the demographic of millennials, you know, you're in your 30s right now, and you have, you're the biggest population group of all time, bigger than, bigger than the baby boomers. And the percentage of home ownership just isn't that high. Yeah. So in, before we went into COVID in the shutdown, 42% of the market was first-time home buyers, And we haven't recovered from that yet. Yeah. And they didn't go away. You know, it's just a question of coming back into the marketplace. So we're slowly starting to see that tick back into the marketplace. But until this inventory issue kind of gets a little bit more stabilized, where more houses come into the market, Dennis, it's going to be a challenge. And when you meet, when you're meeting with, a, whether it's a first time home buyer or a step up buyer, yeah. are you kind of reviewing like arms? Are you looking at 20s, 10s? Or are you kind of just focusing on 30s? How do you, how, when you're sitting there trying to help them make the informed decision, what yeah. are you going over? I've always looked at my job as being, I'm an educator, right? And I give people all of the options that are potentially available to them with the pros and the cons associated with it. So we've done a, over the past few years, it's been a lot of 30 year fix because interest rates were so low. But now you start looking at things, 15-year fix is an ARM product appropriate as well. You know, seven-year or 10-year ARM. I don't love the five-year ARM. Five years goes in a blink, in a blink of an eye. But at least seven or 10 years where they're fixed for that time frame, it can have value for someone, especially if they're looking to sell the house. It's not their long-term uh, house or investment. Something I run into all the time is people call me and say, hey, I want to buy a rental property. You know, what kind of mortgage can I do with that if I want to put it into an LLC? Do you ever run into that where, you know, can a traditional mortgage go into an LLC? That's a good question. So at closing, no. Okay. Can it go in after closing? Yes. Okay. And it depends on the investor behind the scenes. Like Fannie Mae allows for it, mm-hmm. for it to get transferred into the, the name of the LLC. But depending on where that loan's going behind the scenes can dictate whether or not you can transfer it over into the LLC. Now, if you try to close on a loan in the name of the LLC, right? Where now the the mortgage is actually in the LLC and not in the individual's name. That's more of a non-conforming type of mortgage and the interest rates are higher on it. Are they are they still thirty year locks or are they? Yeah, you still oh, do a thirty year mortgage, just higher rate, higher cost on it. Yeah, that's what I see more than anything. It's really the the points associated with doing something like that. Yeah, to me that's actually like that's not a bad risk assessment to make. Is does it make sense to open the LLC, you know, two or three days before closing, throw it into an LLC? Yeah. For you know, I don't know what the point spread is on that, but if it's nothing really major, right, does it kind of save you the headache of having this thing retitled if you want to move it through? Because absolutely, I often get the calls. I mean, there's seller transfer tax yeah. that can be associated with that as well. And then sometimes you know. 
look at the fine print of who ends up with that debt. If you transfer the mortgage to an LLC, it kind of puts you in technical default sometimes. Yeah. I've heard attorneys tell me that's a nightmare if it gets called out. Yep. So, you know, working with you, that's interesting. So that's something you could take a look at on the way in. That's awesome. Yeah, it can be. And it all comes down to the investor behind the scenes. Nice. So do you know who that's going to be when you're actually... That's a good question. You do. When you lock that interest rate in, you really have a good idea as to who that investor is going to be. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Okay. Of course, FHA is kind of a separate entity, so you know it's FHA right out of the gates. And just to be clear on it, doesn't necessarily have to do with who's servicing the loan. Right, right. It's more kind of who that investor is behind the scenes. Right. And those FHA, all those products, the Fannie products, they end up in mutual funds. I always wonder where that where that money goes <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. I just know they make a lot of money. Yeah, no, you know, yeah. Fannie made made a lot of money in the past uh, couple few years, yeah. and it's still technically, I think, a government sponsored agency, really? based on the bailout from uh, from the recession that we wow. had. Yeah, it's amazing because you know, and the mortgage processing bounces around, and a lot of people think, oh my. You know, my mortgage is now held by BOA or moved to Wells Fargo. The underlying investor most likely hasn't changed, just the servicing agent. It, exactly. Right. The servicer is. Where that's, where that's completely different if it's a true jumbo loan. Mm-hmm. The jumbo loan's not going to go to Fannie Mae. It's not going to go to Freddie Mac. It's going to go to whoever that bank is. Okay. So as an example, if you close the jumbo loan in the name of Chase, what Chase basically did, Dennis, is they said, we're going to give you the money. Okay. And now we're going to have the servicing rights and we own the debt and we're not selling the loan. Now, it doesn't mean they reserve, everyone reserves the right to be able to sell a loan, but chances are they're going to keep that on their books. Yeah, well, it beseeches them to do it because there's such value. And and I joke, you know, I'm on my third house. The only bill I look at every month on a routine basis since I've started buying houses is my mortgage. Everything else kind of goes on auto pay and I don't look at it. But for some reason, I'm opening that that yeah. paper document and I refuse to go paperless for some reason Funny, on, yeah. on, on the mortgage. And there's like there's value in that relationship with your mortgage bank. And it's very strange, but for some reason, I'm always going to open that up. Yeah, it's funny. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I do the same thing. And you, I look at it because I want to see principal balance. I want to see principal balance. And it's, it's, it's really strange. I kind of feel not like emotionally attached to the loan, but I kind of feel like I have like a responsibility with, you know, whomever this bank is to make sure I pay it back. And it tends to be kind of where I'm going to do business. I don't know if that makes sense, yeah, right? Okay, because absolutely they're in does. front of my face. So there's value there from yeah. the banking end that that's something you're looking at in that servicing model every single month. Yeah. And there's, to me, there's like, there's tremendous value there. Yeah. That's great perspective on that. Yeah. yeah I couldn't, couldn't agree yeah. with you more. And it's about, you know, you know, I think my parents' generation, you know, they stuck with a brand for their life. You know what I mean? This is the brand they always use. And for banking, it's kind of strange. You know, it's all the banks over the last 15 years. I don't know how long you've been in the industry. You know, they're buying each other. They're kind of going yeah. back and forth so quick. Um, it, there, there seems to be kind of such drastic moves from bank to bank. And hopefully we start to see things kind of slowing down. You see, you get these longer term relationships with your bank. Yeah. So that's who you go to. Like, you, you know. You can go to the same person, work with you, you know, as a correspondent. Yeah. You got a lot of different vehicles to put people, but yep. there's value in that sole relationship. Yeah, and you've seen that change. The banks haven't really, you haven't seen the mergers you were seeing before. I've been in the industry for 25 years. 2008, that's when you saw a lot of that activity yeah. going on when everything started to yeah. decline. I had hair so. like you in 2008. That's what, that's, what, <laughs> that's what that did to me. Yeah. So, Dennis, if someone wanted to reach out to you because they needed tax advice or they want to talk to you about potentially being their accountant, what would be the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way to do is to go to our website, lp-cpa.com, or give us a call, uh, 609-452-2200. Uh, again, we have offices in Princeton, New Jersey, Hamilton, New Jersey, and I run our Bucks County, Pennsylvania office in Newtown. That's great. Could you give the website address one more time? Sure. It's www.lp-cpa.com. That's fantastic. Dennis, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Right. Thanks for having me. It was really great. I want to thank everybody out there for listening today. Look forward to catching up with you next week. Bye, guys. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process, hosted by Greg Wareham, produced by Greg Wareham and Nick Pavise at The Social Rift, and executively produced by The Social Rift. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to catching up with you next week.